Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series on careers in the atmospheric and related sciences. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Rex Horner, and we'll be your hosts. Our podcast series will give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We are excited to introduce today's guest, Doug Hildebrand, Weather Ready Nation Ambassador Lead at the National Weather Service in Silver Spring, Maryland. Welcome, Doug. Thanks so much for joining us. And thank you for having me. Doug, could you tell us a bit about your educational background and what sparked your interest in science? Absolutely. So, like a lot of meteorologists, you know, my interest in the weather started at a very young age, growing up outside of Philadelphia and in the suburbs. And really, our most extreme weather growing up were blizzards and nor'easters. And when I was in fourth grade, and I remember it like it was yesterday, we had a two-foot snowstorm in February of 1983, so I'm dating myself. But it was one of those events that, that really captured the imagination of the atmosphere and of the power of the Earth dynamical system. And so in fourth grade, I knew what I wanted to be. And as I went through my education in, in my K through 12, I always had the dream of becoming a meteorologist. That's where my educational background kind of takes a tangent, uh, where when I went to college and, and back in the 90s, you know, early 90s, there wasn't the internet and information on what programs are out there and where to go to college didn't really exist. And so I went to a small liberal arts college, Bucknell University, uh, that did not have a meteorological program. And so I took something that was close uh, to, to the weather, and that was geology. And I enjoyed it, fell in love with it. But, you know, I was always looking for that meteorological program. My background continues on a tangent in that... Um, I struggled on the math requirement side. And so, you know, not having a job after graduation and, and not really knowing what to do, I went into graduate school at the University of South Florida in geology working on paleoclimates. And so I'm inching closer to my dream of meteorology by studying past climates uh, from a coral that grows in the South Pacific Ocean, studied geochemistry of that coral that translates to sea surface temperatures. And, you know, it continued to get very, very um, interesting when it comes to climate dynamics, climate change. After I received my, my first master's, I eventually was like, I'm going to take the math. I'm going to take all the prerequisites for a meteorological program. And after all of that was done, I went into the NC State meteorological program. Um, it's earth atmospheric science. And so I was able to tie my geology interest in teaching with my graduate program in meteorology, got my master's and shortly thereafter entered the National Weather Service. And 18 years later, here we are. So you mentioned that you had trouble with some of the math courses. Do you have any advice for how you managed to conquer that? <laughs> 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 it's it's intimidating, but you know if if you rely on the teacher to teach, and you know even though it may not be your strength, and you may not think of yourself as 
a mathematician. Um, if, if you persevere and get through it, you know, you don't necessarily need to get, get straight A's. I actually struggled in my calculus one and calculus two classes, which then set me on my heels, right? It's like, oh, if I can't, if, I, if I'm not superior at the Calc 1, Calc 2 level, what, what am I going to be like in Calc 3? I actually got an A in Calculus 3. I survived linear algebra, and then I got an A in differential equations, and that really gave me the confidence when I went into the meteorological program at NC State. I had never taken a meteorological course throughout my entire career, and here I am going into their master's program you know, and, and what was great with that was I was able to take concurrently the undergraduate courses. So it was sort of like undergraduate and a graduate uh, program all at once. Yeah, we hear that a lot um, from people that we've interviewed that some struggled in math, but that's some good advice for our listeners who really want to have careers in meteorology who might not have strengths in math. So, you know, just persevere, like you said, keep going. It might be tough, but you'll get through it. So Doug, you said you ended up at the National Weather Service after your second master's degree. Why did you settle on NWS as an employer? How did you find out about the work you wanted to do for them and what was that job? So, you know, you have to have a little bit of context here. I had been a student uh, in college for 10 years. I was finishing up my second master's degree. And uh, it's not as glamorous of a story as I'd like, but basically Christmas was approaching, you know, here I am, you know, almost 27, 28 years old, not having had a a real career job. And so I applied to the Hydrometeorological Prediction Center. They had an entry level position uh, as a surface analyst. And um, it was, I was curious enough to to apply, and uh, you know, just so that at the dinner table at, at Christmas dinner, when my grandmother or my my family asks me, you know, when are you going to get a job? I can at least answer, well, I've applied for one, and lo and behold, you know, it, it was sort of a blink of an eye. But that following February, I was moving from Raleigh to Alexandria, Virginia. I had about a fifteen minute commute to Camp Springs, where. Uh, the NSEP building was originally back in 2002. And, uh, you know, here I am as a National Weather Service employee, working shift work and um, issuing, you know, real weather products, basically reaching, you know, my dream as a, as a fourth grader. And you were with NWS for 18 years. I assume you had a few other positions along the way. Could you take us through that pathway? Well, I'm going to I'm going to start off with a a challenge to everyone who thinks, you know, is sort of, you know, what decisions have to be made as you as you really look at your at your career and where you want to go. And and one of those defining questions is do you think that you would thrive um shift work 24 by 7. I mean, the weather doesn't stop whether you're in a government agency like the National Weather Service where the private sector, you know, oftentimes they are 24 by 7 operations or near 24 by 7 operations. And I struggled um, in my two and a half, three years at HPC with shift work. And, 
you know, eventually I said, I can't see myself over the long term, you know, going through shift work. And so I looked to headquarters where most of the jobs are, you know, Monday through Friday, nine to five. And, you know, some people do, you know, they, they love the flexibility and the, the different hours uh, of shift work. But it is something that when you're, when you are a student, really look at yourself, look at what you are comfortable with, you know, are you comfortable, you know, working Christmas, working seven nights in a row, which can get actually very lonely. Um, these are tough questions. And, you know, it's always better to to start chewing on those questions sooner than later. So, Doug, what opportunities did you pursue either inside or outside of school when you're attending school that you thought would be beneficial to securing a job? Did you um, do any internships or take any, you know, additional courses? How did, how did you plan? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I did intern um, at a, a company that was doing some environmental work um, tied to resiliency and, you know, being prepared for disasters, uh, especially natural disasters. And uh, that gave me a, a really good understanding of the way emergency management works and the partners of government agencies such as the National Weather Service. And the other thing I think that was a strength of mine in my education was the broad education that I did get. Uh, I went to a liberal arts college. Uh, I didn't get a, a bachelor's in science. I got a bachelor's in arts where I was taking courses like psychology, like sociology, like law, like economics. And you can, you can think, you know, what do any of those courses have to do with meteorology? Number one, it allows me to, to make connections between the meteorology and the societal impacts through the social sciences. But it also helps you, you know, communicate your thoughts and, and being strong as a writer, being strong as a speaker, you know. And so if you're finding yourself mostly focused on your mathematics, on your, you know, sort of the, the meat and potatoes meteorology courses, I would invite you to, to look at other interests that you may have or, or other angles of approach when it comes to your job searches, because being a, a, a strong meteorologist is valuable. But if you're a strong meteorologist with a, a second interest that you have a, a sharp background on, uh, that really helps, I think, in, in applying for jobs. So speaking of that, how do you see the future job market for careers in your field? So, wow, that's, that's a, a really important question, I think, for all of us. You know, through my experience, you know, in, in the last 10 years, really working from communications and a strategic view of the National Weather Service, our partners, uh, as the commissioner of the, the Weather, Water, and Climate Enterprise here at AMS, I see that there, there will always be opportunities to improve the science, right? And so if you do have that sort of traditional meteorology interest and background and you love the science and you love the forecasting, I think there will always be opportunities to get better and better accuracy on our forecasts. But I think what has really changed over the last 10 years and will continue to change is the connection of the forecast 
to the societal impacts. And, you know, there are an infinite ways that weather impacts society. And, you know, and we see that, you know, during every disaster, we see that every day where, you know, the economy can shift based on uh, weather patterns. And, you know, as, as populations continue to grow, as our, you know, resources continue to be strained and, and of course the whole climate change dynamic, you know, I really see opportunities opening up into areas of the economy and sectors that, that maybe not have had a, a prominent connection with, with weather and, and weather forecasting. So Doug, I think we need to figure out exactly how you got to your weather ready nation ambassador lead position. And then I want to ask you, what's a typical day on the job like in that position? So we, we figured out that you didn't love shift work <laughs> and that we need the transition from there. Right. So so to kind of fill out the story, so I, I eventually did get a, a, a job at headquarters and I've been at National Weather Service headquarters there in Silver Spring since 2004. And, you know, I've, I've went into the science and technology um, office there, worked on things back in, you know, topic areas back in 2000, you know, the, the, the aughts of 2000 were, you know, forecast uncertainty, ensemble models, worked things like, um, you know, fire weather, space weather, things that, that really, you know, were brand new in its infancy of, of, uh, of our mission. And, you know, and that was that was amazing experience, and really strengthened my my science and technology background. But the game changer for me was also a game changer for the agency, and in many ways, a game changer for the weather enterprise. And that was April 2011. At the time, I was taking a two-year uh, detail, working for the NOAA administrator, Dr. Jane Lubchenco, Kathy Sullivan. Dr. Kathy Sullivan was, uh, I think at the time, about to become the deputy administrator, I think a month later. But this was a time when, you know, the Southeast tornado outbreak, Joplin uh, tornado in May of 2011, these were seminal events that really changed the way we do business uh, from a government perspective and from an enterprise perspective. Here you have a, a tornado outbreak that was well forecast lead times that were above our, our goals, and yet over 300 people lost their lives in the southeast of those tornadoes and uh, over 150 uh, in Joplin. And so the, the sort of crossroads that we reached was that you can't, you know, it's not just the forecast accuracy that results in a, in a good outcome. But it's really that extra, you know, how are we communicating and working with our emergency managers? How are we making the weather forecast actionable to communities? And with that sort of grew Weather Ready Nation, right? So 2011 was this inflection point. Weather Ready Nation became a thing. We had a, a Weather Ready Nation strategic plan and a, and a roadmap for improving our services. And I was sort of, you know, at the tip of the spear in all of that. And when I went back to the National Weather Service after my detail, I was working in the communications office on Weather Ready Nation. And Weather Ready Nation as a brand and as a movement 
got some excitement through the the weather industry and and within AMS and we actually had people come to us from the private sector saying we love weather a nation how can we be a part of it and uh, so we're talking 2013 ish and we didn't really have that good of an answer but what we did is we took that challenge and we went back to the whiteboard and uh, I was on a small team where we sketched out okay, how can other organizations take partial ownership of this thing called Weather Ready Nation? And we sketched out this ambassador initiative. It recognizes organizations of all types, not just the organizations within the weather enterprise. And I'm proud to say, uh, having led this initiative for the last you know, five or six years, we just passed 11,000 Weather Ready Nation ambassadors. That's amazing. Again, organiz- That's awesome. Yeah, organizations from you know Starbucks and FedEx and uh, Home Depot to you know a, a couple of breweries <laughs> to you know thousands of emergency managers. We've got TV stations. I'd say at least 150 TV stations as ambassadors. And really, the the you know when you talk about community resilience and preparedness for extreme weather. You have to look at the whole community. You can't just target, you know, the emergency management function or the transportation function. You have to look across, you know, sort of close your eyes. What what makes up a community? And those are the ambassadors that we're looking at, you know, places of worship, you know, fire departments, organizations that, that either have a direct link to the Weather Ready Nation mission or even just play a role by being an example themselves. And they, they really don't have a connection to weather. So it's been a real thrill of mine and, and you know, we'll be hitting uh, 20,000, I'm sure. So can you give us an idea for our listeners who might not be completely familiar with um, what a Weather Ready Nation ambassador is, how you become one? Sure, so it's, it's aspirational. It's targeting organizations and not individuals. So it's it's the organization that you can represent. <clears throat> it can be a, a school. Again, it could be a, a church. It could be, you know, your employer. But it's it's organization based, and we ask four things. One is to you know share weather nation contents, weather safety, um, you know, weather events that are in your community, that type of thing. And we ask you to you know partner and collaborate with NOAA and the National Weather Service. I think fundamentally by being an ambassador and, and NOAA running the, the ambassador initiative, it's a commitment to partner, that we're all in it together, that it's not just government trying to fix everything themselves, but really embracing the, the spirit of, of partnership, walking the walk instead of just talking the talk. And um, and then once those two things are, are ongoing, you know, share success stories. We want to hear about your successes in, in helping build a weather ready nation and then also serve as an example to others, you know, whether it's your employees, whether it's your family, you know, those organizations have large points of connection, your social network, your social media platforms. All of that adds up to a, a very profound um, strengthening of our collective resilience. And how are you achieving that on a daily basis? So, you know, a lot of people will, will kid with me over the years, you know, that 
that it's sort of just me, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. The reality is we have 122 offices uh, across the country and every office is participating in engaging their local organizations to be ambassadors. And, and it's been, you know, very satisfying working with, um, you know, offices across the agency, but then also working across um, our ambassadors. And, and some of the, the best ambassadors are ones that are engaging organizations to be ambassadors. And I'll give you one example. Uh, we really struggle in America with mobile homes and manufactured housing and the threat of, of tornadoes. And, you know, we've seen it this year, we've seen it in past years where, you know, there's a, there are anchoring problems um, with, with these uh, structures and, and people, you know, taking shelter in, in less than ideal places. And we've had ambassadors within the weather enterprise actually engage, um, you know, associations that represent manufactured homes, We've engaged engineers who are experts at the impacts of a high wind event and have really identified that it's not so much the, the actual box that is built, but it's, it's how that box is anchored to the ground and what happens, you know, in a, even in a severe thunderstorm, but, but even tornadoes is you, you start, you lose that connection to the foundation. That's when very bad things happen. So this is an example of, you know, if if we weren't within this weather ready nation paradigm, I don't think these connections would have been made. But because we're we're, we're looking at it from a, a community perspective and not just a forecast accuracy perspective, we're able to ask hard questions. We're able to engage homeowners that that maybe think that their their home is safe when it's not, and that they can take other actions to protect themselves because ultimately that's what that's what's driving our mission is is the the saving of life and property not necessarily just the forecast accuracy so um in your communication department do you put together any um informational pamphlets tips do you have weather ready nation events or anything like that that you run to help uh, promote the program very much so and and i like to use the analogy that you know, we create a buffet and our ambassadors are able to engage on the various opportunities that we provide. So just like the buffet table, you can eat uh, little portions of everything on the table or you can eat a lot of just one thing. We give opportunities for ambassadors to engage. One awesome example, it's my favorite example, is our Safe Place Selfie campaign where we encourage our ambassadors, you know, individuals across the country to recognize and identify where their safe place is from various hazards and, you know, take a selfie and post it on your social media platform and hashtag safe place selfie. We've reached uh, the last couple of years over or just about 100 million Twitter accounts. And, and this is a great a great campaign because it, it captures preparedness in action, right? When you take that selfie, 
you're not just saying, yeah, I know where my my safe place is, but you're actually going there to that location and, and taking a selfie. So that's just one one example. Uh, but we have safety campaigns. And, and to answer your initial question, if you go to weather.gov, you know, forward slash WRN, it is a treasure trove of resources. Excellent. Yeah. Infographics, safety content for all the various hazards that we um we look at, we also really pay, you know, within this weather ready nation paradigm, we pay close attention to those who are most vulnerable. So on that website, we have web pages for the deaf and hard of hearing, for uh, learning disabled, where, you know, there are pictures instead of, you know, words that describe the weather hazards. Um, we have a lot of Spanish language content. It really is focusing on a weather ready nation for all. So you do a lot. Is there anything in particular that you like the most about your job? Wow. Well, uh, I do love the social media aspect. Uh, I think getting in the, uh, the the proverbial captain's chair when you're you know in a in a social you know a, a Twitter account of three million followers like that's that's a pretty good rush. Uh, it sure beats my 700 followers on my private <laughs> Twitter account. Um, you know, and I, I love that connection where, you know, you, you, you have a voice, even though, you know, you're sort of anonymous, um, you have a voice. And, and even today, you know, on our ambassador Twitter account, you know, I'm looking at different angles to get to people. Whether safety, I will be blunt, it's, it's kind of like trying to feed broccoli to, you know, a child. People know it's good for you, but there are a lot of other things people want to eat, right? And, and mm -hmm. so weather safety is important. It could save your life. It could save the life of a loved one. So you have to, you know, you have to do some razzle-dazzle, um, you know, carrying the analogy forward. You know, I grew up with, with just boiled, you know, plain old broccoli, but if you put the olive oil drizzle and the sea salt and you bake it and it's crispy, wow, that broccoli doesn't necessarily just taste like broccoli. It tastes, it tastes yummy. And so part of my job is making weather safety, weather preparedness, weather ready nation, a fun, exciting thing that people want to do and not just, well, it's good for you. So that's the best part of my job. What's the most challenging part of your job? You know, there are times I feel alone in caring so much about weather safety and preparedness. And, you know, I don't make a forecast. I don't, you know, I'm not right or wrong on that forecast. Um, it, it, there are frustrating days. And so if, you know... If you scroll through social media, you know, you'll see a post of, you know, words of inspiration to, to get through the tough times and, uh, you know, overcome and, and all these things that, that you need to do. And, and it's true that you have to dig deep at times to make sure people are, you know, are energized and motivated and excited and, and, uh, you know, I, I learned a, a few years ago, it was a great speaker who talked about humans have a finite amount of worry that they can 
deal with. Uh, I think if you look around at what worries you and what doesn't worry you, that makes sense in many ways. We push things off that we should be worrying about to the side because we have something you know, that's taking up all of our time. And so people aren't worried about tornadoes unless there's a tornado coming, right? <laughs> so, so it's, it's how do you, you know, the biggest challenge is, is how do you stay up on carrying out the mission 365 days a year when, you know, people's attention and their ability to worry about something, you know, people aren't worried about the weather every single day. And so we're just looking for ways, you know, to make sure that before hurricane season, people are figuring out, yes, I need to do these three things. I've got time now. I'm not going to have as much time or even worse, when I am trying to do these three things, everyone in my community is trying to do those three things. And, and so there's a log jam. You know, that's the challenge every day. So how is it working at National Weather Service headquarters in your position now as far as work-life balance? I couldn't be happier, to be honest with you. Uh, I know this isn't reality for everybody, but uh, whether it's my immediate supervisor or just the culture, really since the pandemic started, you know, we've been teleworking every single day and I feel like I've, I haven't missed a step before the pandemic, I would telework, uh, you know, one, sometimes twice a week. And it really helped me be able to put in my time, be productive. I always tell people I'm, I'm more productive at home than I am in the office because the office just gives you more distractions and, and uh, you know, more people trying to get your attention and, and whatnot. And, and I'm able to focus on what's what's important. So that's been a, a, a lifesaver. Um, I, I can't speak enough about, you know, effective teleworking. And, uh, you know, I, I look forward to, to continuing that now that, you know, I, I think over the last four months, people have really shined where maybe they didn't think teleworking, you know, was, a, was as effective as being in the office. Um, but also, you know, th th there is flexibility. And I, I think the, the take-home message to people is you build that relationship with, with your immediate supervisor. Uh, I, I don't think you can necessarily walk in the first day and start demanding, you know, to have flexible hours and do this and that. But you build up the trust, you build up the, the record of your performance that you're able to more and more sort of build out that work-life balance um, over time. And, you know, it, it's, I have five kids, so. <laughs> yeah, you need, you need a little bit of that life work balance. <laughs> it's a survival uh, mechanism here. What are some of the most exciting moments you've had during your career, Doug? Well, I, I previously mentioned that I detailed down, you know, at NOAA headquarters for two years and I, that was a roller coaster, whirlwind ride. You know, my first day on the job um, down in DC was the tsunami, the earthquake, and the tsunami and the nuclear disaster there at Fukushima in Japan um, in early March of 2011. And I don't know if you know, I'm going to remember 2011 for a long time. But but for those who may not have that memory of 2011. 2011, there was a, it seems like there was a natural disaster, you know, every couple of weeks. 
you know, first it was the tsunami, then it was the the tornado outbreak, um, then it was the the Joplin tornado, and then there was the Mississippi River flooding, and so you just had this conveyor belt of of um, incredible um, events. And being down at the, you know, I worked in the NOAA policy office for weather and satellites at the time, and just the what was riding day after day, working with professionals like Dr. Kathy Sullivan, you know, was was really incredible. And, you know, my advice to, to others, because it certainly wasn't just handed to me, was if you see opportunities, even if it's a little bit risky, and especially if, if you're if you have the opportunity to staff really good people, it is a leadership opportunity and, and experience, and it's a it's a time that that really had incredible growth for me. I really expanded from just sort of a meteorologist and you know S and T guy to a science communicator to you know looking at policy, looking at solutions beyond just you know the daily forecast, and you know it really sort of set up you know the remaining you know, 15, 20 years of my career. So now that you're pretty established in your career, is there anything you wish you had done differently looking back? Well, hindsight is always twenty twenty, but I actually wish, you know, even in, in my undergraduate studies, I would have probably been better off going down a communications track, not necessarily becoming a TV meteorologist, but you know, the ability to speak and communicate and write effectively with weather, weather forecasting, climate is is so valuable, is so needed that I, I wish I actually had a, a degree in communications. I would have done that over again. And I think what it points to, again, is that, you know, you got to look for an angle when you're looking at your career and and you know, not everybody is going to want to go down a, a communications path or a social science path uh, along with their interest in meteorology. But, you know, it could be a finance or, you know, you may have interest in insurance, <laughs> something that, that has strong connections to the weather. And, and, you know, you could work on Wall Street and be a meteorologist and be, you know, highly employable. Yeah, maybe a minor in communication might be a good idea. Yeah. No, absolutely. You know, it, it's not sexy, but being a strong speaker and writer is just, it's so incredibly valuable. So if you were hiring someone uh, in your department, what would you look for on a resume or in a cover letter? Would you find a way to see that they're a communicator uh, in that context? Would you try to suss that out of the, uh, the, those materials? I think the number one thing I would look for is, does their resume come across as, as, you know, and this may sound a little weird, but is it comfortable or are they pushing themselves to be uncomfortable? And, and I think that, you know, like what I'm most proud of when I talk about my career is that I, I went into a master's program not having taken a single course in that discipline. 
And for anyone who has done it, you know, hopefully they're nodding their head and they're saying, yeah, it was scary. Failure wasn't an option, but boy, you, you thought about failure every single day and, and the disadvantages that you had. But, but I went into that program, one, motivated, but two, I was able to rely on my other experiences. They're not completely unrelated. You know, the scientific method works for, for all disciplines. Um, and so, you know, I would look for a resume that's like, wow, I, I wonder, like, that's interesting that they, they went down this path, you know, versus sort of the, the most traditional path, right? Right. <laughs> right. Looking for that angle. Doug, we always ask our guests one last fun question at the end of each podcast. I'd like to ask, what is your all-time favorite book? Oh, my goodness. So I am, I will admit I am not the biggest reader, uh, at least of, of like, you know, fiction or nonfiction outside of, of work. However, uh, I would say my answer to that question is the book Winter Storms, and it was written by my sister, and she is a New York Times bestseller. Uh, she has 24 novels, but what makes Winter Storms so much fun to read was one, I, my, my name and my character is in the book, and oh, cool. two, <laughs> right, right, and two, uh, there's about a page or two that I actually wrote because it, it's a, it's a story. It's actually part of four books, but it's a, it's a story about a family living on Nantucket and all of her novels are about Nantucket, take place on Nantucket. They're fiction. Um, they're kind of beach reads. Uh, but you know, there was a, a, a big winter storm, obviously from the title of the book. But she, she reached out to me and said, okay, can you explain what a nor'easter is to the general public, right? So that was the grand challenge. I could have thrown all the technical jargon at her, but she wasn't wanting that. She wanted it explained accurately, but yet, you know, with common plain English and you know, something that, that her readers wouldn't get lost on, but, but actually would be able to visualize what was going on in the book. Wow, that's incredible. So did you fit in any preparedness, preparedness <laughs> messages into the book? I did. I mean, my character was a, uh, I was the, the TV meteorologist for New York City. Um, gosh, I could talk forever on this, but, um, you know, and I was a hipster, and, you know, so I was dr dressed in, in funky clothing, you know, on air and everything. It was really creative the way she, she pulled the character. I'm not a hipster, by the way. Uh, but it was, it was really um, fun. And, um, you know, I was able to like, you know, basically I was sounding the alarm and people were poo-pooing it, <laughs> <laughs> which maybe is, is, you know, too typical. Yeah, maybe there'll be a movie in the works and uh, you can star. That's right. You can be the star. Oh, <laughs> Kelly, keep going, keep going. That's incredible, Doug. Um, so what's, what's your sister's names if we wanted to look up the book ourselves? Winter Storms by? By Ellen Hildebrand, E-L-I-N. And she goes by her, her maiden name. And uh, yeah, no, she just had a book out uh, last week. She, she writes about a 
well, lately she's been writing two books a year, so she's very busy. But they're they're great reads. It's fun. It's fun to you know be walking on the beach and you know you see somebody and uh, actually I was flying on an airplane back when we could fly on airplanes um, in the fall and I looked over next to me and and the woman was was reading one of my sister's past books and it, it's cute to be able to insert yourself and say is there any message you'd like me to tell the author <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> we'll see if your character makes a return appearance in one of her future books. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us, Doug, and for sharing your work experiences with us. Thank you. It's put a big smile. Well, that's our show for today. Please join us next time, rain or shine. <laughs>